Welcome to this event, which is jointly sponsored by the European Studies Center, the Darndorf Program for the Study of Freedom, the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, and the Oxford University Project on Civil Resistance and Power Politics. Our subject today is, does the internet help people power? A question posed already in relation to people power movements in Ukraine, Iran, Burma, Belarus, and of course, even as we speak, uh, or at least even as I speak, uh, in Tunisia. And just to give you a, get you in the mood, let me give you part of President Gaddafi's reaction to the role of the internet in these events. I quote, even you, my Tunisian brothers, you may be reading this Kleenex and empty talk on the internet. A Kleenex is what Gaddafi calls WikiLeaks. This internet, which any demented person, any drunk, can get drunk and write in, do you believe it? The internet is like a vacuum cleaner. It can suck anything, any useless person, any liar, any drunkard, anyone high on drugs can talk on the internet, and you read what he writes, and you believe it. This is talk which is for free. Shall we become the victims of Facebook and Kleenex and YouTube? No. Shall we become victims to tools they created so that they can laugh at our moods? Thus, the question of the day is posed by President Gaddafi. Um, to pose a question in perhaps slightly more scholarly form, uh, we're delighted to have Evgeny Morozov and uh, John Lloyd. Evgeny Morozov was born in Belarus in 1984. So he was clearly predestined to write about the internet and dictatorships, uh, which he has done extremely originally, knowledgeably, and provocatively in many places, challenging what he calls the cyber-utopianism, characteristic particularly of a certain US approach to these things. And he's pulled this argument together in his book, which has just been published. It's called The Net Delusion. It's available for anyone to buy at a knockdown price in old-fashioned paper form, just uh, in the foyer. Um, and we're delighted that he's with us today to present his argument on the specific question of does the internet help or by implication hinder people power or more precisely in what ways does it do the one or the other. Um, our respondent is uh, John Lloyd who is Director of Journalism at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism in this university, extremely well known as one of this country's leading writers about analysts of journalism and the media, but also someone who has written as a journalist from Russia for many years, has written a book about Russia, and therefore knows very well at least one of the regional contexts uh, which Evgeny Morozov is very familiar with and comes out of. Evgeny will speak for no more than 20 minutes. I have the internationally familiar language of the yellow and red cards to control his time. 
Uh, John will speak for no more than 20, 10 minutes, and there will be plenty of time for discussion. And I should just mention that in the spirit of our subject, everything we say will soon be on the internet on the Oxford University iTunes site. Again. Thank you so much. I think, uh, judging by your introduction, uh, it's now clear that Gaddafi will be in high demand for book blurbs uh, in the season to come. Uh, maybe I should ask him instead of Gladwell, uh, <laughs> who's the next dark, dark side book that I, that I produce. Uh, let me tell you first about what uh, this book uh, is not about. Uh, I'm not in any way uh, denying uh, the power of the internet and social media. Uh, to help people organize themselves, uh, get into the streets, or campaign on issues uh, that are political, that are social, that might be environmental. Uh, all of that is happening, uh, and all of that, I think, uh, to various degrees, should be encouraged by uh, supporters of democracy in the West. Uh, to better help you understand why I think about this subject, uh, it's not only that you know I come from Belarus. Uh, I was privileged to have a very early experience with uh, what, in my eyes, is a very successful project of how the West can help democratization, and that is George Soros' Open Society Institute. You know, I benefited from their scholarship to go study, and I eventually I joined uh, the board of the information program, which actually spends a lot of time thinking uh, how to use technology and new media. Uh, to promote democratic and open society values. So uh, my interest in this is very pragmatic. Actually, I want the internet to help. So in no way am I uh, you know, a curmudgeon that denies uh, the power of the media, even though sometimes I do sound a little bit curmudgeon-like. Um, uh, that said, uh, I think it's very uh, important uh, for us uh, not to lose sight of the fact that it's not just the power of mobilization that social media brings. Uh, it's also, uh, in many contexts, uh, the power to uh, track and identify dissidents and protesters. Uh, let me just contrast what I think uh, happened in Belarus just a month ago with what happened in Tunisia, uh, just to show some of the, I think, uh, very interesting differences in the way in which social media and the internet uh, could actually affect uh, certain countries. So what happened in Belarus was very interesting in the sense that the government, uh, on the day of the election, on December 19th, uh, shut, didn't shut down the entire internet. What they did was only to shut down uh, one internet protocol, uh, you know, HTTPS, which basically uh, is the secure version, to put it very, uh, you know, broadly, the secure version of the normal HTTP protocol, which is now used in all, e in most email services, in uh, sites, increasingly like Facebook and Twitter, and what that uh, basically uh, did to anyone who wanted to use internet in Belarus is that. While some websites were available, people couldn't get into the email, right? Simply because email requires that HTTPS protocol, right? People couldn't get to social media like Twitter and Facebook because they too now increasingly demand HTTPS for people to log in. Uh, that happened for just, I think, six or seven hours uh, right before the uh, polling both closed, 
right? Uh, the other thing which happened, which I also think was very interesting, is that the government uh, or someone uh, who didn't like the opposition uh, launched attacks on the websites of the opposition media, uh, which were actually informing the people uh, about the protests. Right, so people could actually find out what was happening and where the protests were taking place, in part because uh, the websites were either unavailable or for a very, again, brief period of time on Sunday uh, during the elections, uh, they even managed to uh, replace, uh, well, they managed to redirect anyone who would visit an oppositional website to a page uh, that was uh, one day old. So basically, everyone who would visit that website would only see news from yesterday. They wouldn't see all of the updated uh, you know, news published about the protests. So, and of course, most of those websites relied, they knew that that would be happening, and they relied on email. They thought that they would be able to send an email message to all of their subscribers and inform them, even if their websites become unavailable. Uh, but of course, since the HTTPS protocol was down, they couldn't use email also. So in a sense, they ended up without their website and without their backup systems through which they could actually inform all of their subscribers through mailing lists. Right? So um, the most disturbing part, uh, and that's the final part, the final bit I'll say about Belarus, the most disturbing part was that there are now reports that the government is actually um, asking uh, mobile operators for details of everyone uh, who had a mobile phone and was in the protest zone uh, on the day of the protests. Right? And again, the technology for that uh, exists. The mobile operators know who was where and when. They could uh, easily link you know, the numbers to real names. And the idea is that the government, uh, you know, if they really want to, they would go and start prosecuting the people who actually showed up at the protest. Could I just clarify? Yes. They're asking the mobile phone operators. Yes. Yes. Right. Uh, those are, you know, the people who, you know, run the mobile towers, so they can actually right. triangulate who was where. I mean, this is technology that is uh, uh, available. Um, so this is the, uh, you know, example of Belarus where I think uh, social media, of course, did help to an extent to publicize what was happening, the way it reports on Twitter. Uh, the darker side, I think, is that, you know, the government managed to stay in power, and if they really want to go and start tracking down on dissidents and anyone who was protesting, uh, they are in a position, in a much better position, I would argue, than the way before social media to actually go and identify who those people were. And I think this is uh, a very good distinction. Uh, the same, by the way, to an extent happened in Iran, where uh, the government also, after the protests died down, uh, turned to social media websites for evidence and for any hints of uh, who were those protesters. They would, at some point, they posted photos uh, that were initially posted to Flickr on uh, the websites of the government-run news agencies, asking people to identify if they can recognize any of the faces in the photos. Uh, and there was, of course, also a lot of uh, searching on sites like Facebook and Twitter, trying to identify uh, you know, uh, whether uh, Iranians uh, who were participating in the protests had any connections with foreigners, and some of that was also used in court as evidence that uh, you know, some of the protests were actually organized and inspired uh, by, by the West. Um, so uh, the, the lesson that I learned from this is that, uh, you know, while social media uh, can be extremely useful in publicizing what's happening and mobilizing people, if the protests do not topple the government and if the government stays in power, I guess their capacity to track down everyone who's participated, who's been participating in the protest is greater than it has been in the past. But this is one sad lesson 
uh, that I draw from the events. Um, if you look at what happened in Tunisia uh, recently, I think the situation is uh, more optimistic, but I think it's more optimistic in part because uh, you know, Ben Ali left and we still don't know which way the government will turn. If the government wanted to engage in acts of repression, they would have plenty of evidence and plenty of hints uh, to identify uh, you know, the people. Again, we can argue whether the people who are participating in the protests were fully aware of the risks. Some of them probably were, some of them were willing to uh, go and uh, you know, sacrifice their lives, as we have seen in Tunisia. Um, however, I, I would like to urge you to go back to some of the initial assumptions uh, about the promise of social media. That promise was that it would actually be possible for dissident movements to tap into new you know, reservoirs, if you wish, of uh, people power, of people who are not yet uh, you know, dissidents themselves, people who are just on Facebook, you know, YouTube, uh, you know, watching cat videos, who would be able to get, you know, uh, to join the cause because they see something online and because you know, it, they don't think it's, it's much to sign up to a Facebook group or send a Twitter message, right? So the, problem, the early promise was that it would be possible to go beyond the dissidents and scale the protests. So this is, I think, the uh, criteria that we need to keep in mind. It's not that you know, it's just the dissidents, it's the broader movement, and it's the broader movement which I think is not fully aware of the risks that mobile technology poses or that Facebook poses, or how changes you know, in Facebook's privacy policy may actually affect the security uh, of uh, its users. Uh, looking at Tunisia again, I think what I found very fascinating is that uh, you know, just a week ago, uh, when you know, the protests had been going on for something like three weeks, the government was still um, bold and strong enough to actually go and uh, hack into the email accounts of the activists and go and break, you know, and, and start all sorts of uh, scams on Facebook where they would also be able to get the, um, uh, you know, user details, passwords, uh, and such uh, of the users involved. So uh, if you look at Tunisia, the government's ability to control the internet uh, did not get weaker, right? So again, if you look at the sort of political and social forces uh, shaping what was happening, you know, if they turned the other way and the government stayed in power uh, and Ben Ali stayed and you know, they really wanted to go and really engage in crackdowns and repression, uh, I think they could have. You know, the technology was there, the ability was there, they were recording everything. Uh, as I said, they were still breaking into the accounts of the dissidents uh, and bloggers up until the very end. Um, if you look at some of the credit which uh, sites like Twitter and Facebook, and especially Wikileaks, got for what happened in Tunisia, um, I think it partly reflects um, and supports my thesis that there is just too much hype and excitement about the power of the internet. If you look at some of the commentary in the American media, and particularly the American mainstream blogosphere, people like Andrew Sullivan and others, uh, who are touting the Twitter revolution in Iran, they're now also touting the Wikileaks revolution in Tunisia. And there is nothing wrong with trying to understand um, the contribution that Wikileaks has made to the events in um, Tunisia. And probably it played some role, if not in telling Tunisians that their government is corrupt, which of course most of them knew, but at least in telling them that it may not, not uh, be enjoying the support of the American government any longer. Mm. So on that level, mm. it may have had some impact. It may have also made an impact in terms of revealing that, you know, what everyone knew, right? There is this uh, interesting insight in the collective, you know, action uh, series that 
it's not just what you know, it's that, you know, you should know what others know. So once everyone knew the same things, you know, probably they were more likely to act collectively. Uh, but my problem with many of these uh, assumptions, which I, I think are valid, is that once you put them together and you add some, you know, cyber utopianism on top, you end up uh, thinking that, you know, Wikileaks is bound to produce similar outcomes in other countries. What Twitter is, produce, is likely to produce similar outcomes in other countries. So there is this uh, deterministic uh, narrative, which is often embedded in our, you know, uh, understanding of what the Twitter or Facebook or Wikileaks revolution is. And I think this is uh, a very wrong um, deterministic narrative. Even if you look at a country like Belarus, which what I found fascinating is that the government itself seemed to be very happy about Wikileaks. In the case of Belarus, um, they were actually Lukashenko in one of his speeches immediately after the elections mentioned Wikileaks six times uh, in his speech. Uh, and you know the reason why he does so is because the only things that Wikileaks cables can reveal is that uh, America is supporting the opposition movement in, in Belarus, which for Lukashenko is great because it helps him to delegitimize the opposition and to basically weaken them uh, and portray them as agents of the West. So what happened in Belarus in the last few weeks is that they actually appeared cables that were not published by Wikileaks originally and were not published by The Guardian, but they were published by uh, media affiliated with the state, uh, uh, documenting how the American government is smuggling money to the Belarusian opposition. Right? And uh, I can assure you that uh, it didn't help the prospects of democratization in Belarus. Right? So again, we have to be very careful about uh, you know, labeling anything, and that's part of my argument, you have to be very careful about labeling anything as a Twitter or Wikileaks or Facebook revolution, in part because social media uh, does not have the same deterministic effect everywhere, and in most conditions, uh, the vector of that change is determined by the existing political and social situation on the ground, and not by the logic of the technology. Um, so, uh, how much time do I have? About seven minutes. Okay. Um, so, uh, what else uh, do the governments do beyond, uh, you know, just tracking what, what, what people are doing? Uh, and I think this also is very important to understand because my, my interest in the book, and I know that you want to talk more about people power, but my interest in the book is what happens between protests, right? And what happens between uh, the situations where people are mobilized. If you do assume uh, that uh, social media and the internet is making protest more effective to some extent. You also have to evaluate whether the internet and social media is actually making the protest more likely to begin with. And this is the second question that interests uh, me much more than the first one, because I think the first one is mostly a question of economics. Yes, uh, social media reduces costs of you know, collective action, it makes coordination easier, it makes access to information easier. I mean, all of that to me seems pretty clear. Uh, and it's not really shaped all that much by the political situation. Uh, the second question, whether the protest is becoming less likely, even though it's becoming more effective, I think is a much more challenging question. And here you really have to look beyond the power of mobilization and look at how the governments themselves are using social media 
uh, for their own purposes. And again, it differs from country to country, but here you do have to look at things like uh, how social media facilitates surveillance. You do have to look at things like how social media facilitates the production of propaganda uh, and how the even mode of propaganda is different uh, in uh, social media than it is in traditional media. I mean, I look at a country like Russia where, you know, there are a lot of very interesting uh, new media entrepreneurs and new media gurus who are all uh, very knowledgeable about the internet. They have been online since 1995 in some cases. Uh, they are you know, the pioneers of the Russian internet. Uh, many of them ended up uh, working for the Kremlin, uh, running uh, pro-government conservative uh, you know, news sites, uh, social media sites, uh, and uh, building new media empires which uh, contribute very little to the democratization in Russia. Uh, and uh, to me, uh, this is uh, a much more challenging uh, political and social question. Uh, because here, if you really want to draw conclusions about power of the internet, you really have to examine every country and look at how uh, the governments with their own existing political and social agendas are shaping uh, the internet according you know, to, to, to their own needs. Um, my problem with having uh, many people in Washington uh, enthusiastically embrace uh, the power of the internet, uh, and as you may have noticed in the last 12 months, they have been really aggressive on this front with Hillary Clinton delivering a very high profile speech about internet freedom, with uh, you know, a lot of American politicians speaking up about it, is that they lose sight uh, of the fact that uh, you know, America is not neutral to this debate. America has its own uh, domestic agenda uh, with regards to the power of the internet and with regards to uh, minimizing the damage caused by sites like WikiLeaks and caused by internet piracy and caused by the threat of cyber warfare, all of that points away from internet freedom as such. Right? And on the uh, second level, you have another concern, which I think most politicians and decision makers in America are not aware of, which is that much of this protest, much of this mobilization is facilitated by American companies. Facilitated by Twitter, it's facilitated by Facebook, it's facilitated by, you know, in some cases, Google and Skype, um, and all of them are, as we know, American companies. And uh, when they facilitate political change, uh, it backfires on American companies and on the American government, particularly when the American government explicitly endorses uh, Twitter revolution in Iran and you know, makes much to uh, sort of create this impression that they were somehow tinkering with what was happening uh, during the protests when they famously reached out to Twitter. So uh, my argument here is that it's very hard for America to keep uh, an honest face here because on the one hand, they themselves domestically are cracking down on many of these companies because they want more surveillance power to, you know, for law enforcement, they want more control towards situations like WikiLeaks, which of course then is being exploited by uh, the governments in Russia and China and Iran, where they point to the duplicity of the American government. And what they want to do is to replace uh, many of these uh, American players with the local domestic ones, right? So here again, we will soon be seeing the transition from much of this protest being facilitated by American companies and European companies to some extent, who have much better 
rules and standards when it comes to freedom of expression. <coughs> they just respect the users more. You know, they have a more transparent mechanisms of how they deal with protest. You know, if you set up a Facebook group that wants to challenge established cultural you know, mores in you know, Pakistan or you know, Iran or Russia or China, chances are your group is more likely to survive on the local social networking side if that side is American, uh, if that side is local. Uh, in part because it's just much easier for the local governments to pressure these companies. Uh, so the big question that I think uh, many people in America uh, and uh, in, in, in Brussels to some extent in Europe have to answer is whether it is worth living um, the internet you know, as it is, dominated by American players without having uh, you know, without making any controversial remarks about internet freedom, Twitter revolutions and such, mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, uh, very, pa very aggressively go after the subjects and potentially risk that all of these uh, companies and services will be replaced by local players. And they will be replaced by local players that list in countries like Russia and China simply because they have this, this, they're sitting on piles of cash they have talented engineers, and chances are, you know, by year 2020, they'll own half of Silicon Valley because they need to expand somewhere, right? And uh, we will be seeing an increased uh, connection between uh, these debates, whether, you know, Baidu should be allowed to send, uh, you know, uh, cars taking photos of American streets and towns the way Google wants to go around China making, you know, photos of Chinese streets and towns. And all of those debates about trade, about, uh, you know, uh, some of them will be about national security, they will be affecting the power of uh, many of these websites uh, to affect social change and to be used for activism. So, uh, you know, some of the arguments I'm making in the book is simply trying to draw attention to the factors that will be, cha that will be shaping the power of these websites in the future. I mean, even if they have been effective up until now, which is something I do not uh, necessarily deny, uh, we have to be uh, extremely careful uh, about preserving that possibility for the future and making those websites less susceptible to tracking, surveillance, and many of the other factors that I outlined at the beginning. So uh, the key takeaway message is that it's, uh, <clears throat> It's, an, it's all in flux. The social media landscape, I think, is changing uh, tremendously. It's being shaped uh, by forces that um, most decision makers who speak enthusiastically about internet freedom and Twitter revolutions do not fully understand. Um, and I think we have to be very cautious about uh, setting expectations uh, on subjects like internet freedom in the foreign context so high that our own domestic uh, you know, mistakes will cost us dearly and make us look extremely duplicitous. Mm -hmm. So I think I'll stop here and uh, I hope we, we'll, we'll have some good Q&A. Thank you very much, Evgeny, for laying out the argument very clearly. A lot of very interesting points there. Um, I think we should keep in mind the very interesting distinction between the question, does internet and social media, one, make protests more likely, mm -hmm. two, make protests more likely to succeed once they have started? Mm -hmm. That was, I think, one of your points. And three, as it were, the tipping point question between them being an asset to an opposition, yes. so long mm -hmm. as it succeeds, mm -hmm. but an asset to repression if it fails yes. to reach 
the tipping point. And you know, the first question I would add is again, you have to look at the infrastructure that facilitates that protest. And here again, I mean, you know, companies like Facebook, Twitter, and others, that infrastructure is a huge factor. And who owns that infrastructure, which countries own that infrastructure, whether it's business or political decisions shaping that infrastructure is crucial. I mean, that infrastructure doesn't come for free. Yeah. And it's different from the infrastructure of previous protest movements. It's different from fax machines. It's different from, you know, uh, telephones and everything else. It's just, it's political economy is different. Uh, and, and we have to keep that in mind. Brilliant. John. Uh, thanks, Tim. Um, Yevgeny Morozov has established himself uh, as the voice, um, of the, the skeptical voice on the liberationist possibilities of the, of, of the net. And for somebody who, as Tim reminds us, was born in Belarus in 1984, that's pretty good. Um, uh, clearly, I labor under the disadvantage of not being born in Minsk uh, without an authoritarian education. And I think that... Um, Maybe the, Scotland did something about it. Tried its best. <laughs> even Dundee could never reach the level of Minsk. Um, it's worse. It's Solig Worsk. Actually, uh, they made a film a film some time ago now, during the Cold War of, of Moscow, it was Gorky Park, he made a film off, and they shot it in Dundee, uh, because it, looked, it was the closest city you could find, the closest city you could find which looked like Moscow in the 1980s. By the by, um, I, I want to pick up a number of things, I mean, a number of things that I agree with on, on Yevgeny, and, and he too doesn't go around saying, it's, I mean, he's often credited with saying, that uh, he doesn't believe that the net does anything at all. He doesn't believe that at all, of course. Um, uh, but I wanted to pick up some things, and, uh, including some things he said last night when he was on, on Newsnight uh, last night. He's come to Oxford to get a, a bigger audience. Um, <laughs> uh, where he said that... Smarter, smarter. <laughs> um, he was talking about Tunisia and the T Tunisian revolution, which uh, I think the moderator said... Um, uh, had been called the WikiLeaks revolution, which uh, is painfully uh, absurd. It was called so because one of the cables that was put out on WikiLeaks uh, said that one of the diplomats in Tunisia had uh, saw the Tunisian government as, as corrupt. Um, and uh, uh, Evgeny commented that, that everyone knows, everyone in Tunisia knows, everyone in Belarus knows that the regime is corrupt. And I think that's an important point, the everyone knows point. Um, everyone does know, I think, or most people know, certainly in, in Russia, in Belarus, I, uh, I'm sure, in Tunisia, I guess, knows that the regime is corrupt. But when you have something exact, like a leak from a, a diplomatic cable, which is then put out on the internet, or when, as the more famous cable on the internet had it um, uh, said that, the, that diplomats in Saudi Arabia quoted the Saudi leadership is saying, as, as asking the United States to cut off the head of the snake. Now, everybody knows, by which is often meant simply everybody in the know knows. That is, journalists, diplomats, people in the political sphere know, actually not so much the general population. Um, but when you know exactly what, assuming that the cable to be accurate, what uh, the Saudi leadership thinks about, about the danger of Iran, then your knowledge is increased largely greatly. It becomes more exact. It's, it comes down from the level of being vague and unfocused into something exact. And that not necessarily empowers a revolution, but it certainly empowers your own view of things, empowers your opinion and your, and your knowledge. And that, I think, is, is um, 
one of the great advantages of revelations on the net, aided by social media and by Twitter and so on, once that knowledge becomes more exact, once it's tied down to something exact, then the, the information is more precious. So to dismiss it, as he again did last night, uh, as, well, that's something everybody knows, uh, is only partially true. Uh, when you know something more exactly, when you have chapter and verse, this, after all, is what journalism, uh, fact-based journalism's claim is, when you, when you tie it down to facts, observable facts, sourced facts, then things change. The ability to hold governments to account seems to me to be one of the, the great advantages you know, that the net has increased largely, increased for our trade, for, for, for journalists' trade. And uh, Tim mentioned I spent some years in, in Russia, about four years ago, uh, Floriana Fossato was in the audience and, and I wrote a, um, a, a challenge, one of the first challenges, pamphlets that the Reuters Institute did on the Russian internet. And we found then, and the research was mainly Floriana's, we found then that the Russian internet was pretty mediocre. Um, people on the net were having kind of fairly um, small-minded quarrels with each other. It wasn't really an attempt to get out, to broaden it. Um, and we thought it, we, and the thing was called the web that failed. Now, four years later, it, it is succeeding much better. Um, the Russian internet is a place of real interest where bloggers, websites, uh, political movements have come on and it is the place in a semi-authoritarian media environment, a semi-authoritarian country, where you find the best discussion the best debate, the best commentary, and indeed sometimes the best news, the best sheer information of, uh, in, in the, the Russian media. And that holding to account over time, it's developed over time, uh, is one of the great, I think, advantages of the net. I'm sure Evgeny wouldn't deny this, but I think it's worth saying that within an authoritarian system, which of course can and does track the people who go onto the internet who suborns them very often with, you know, with, with money and privileges and brings them over to the Kremlin side, and there's a great deal of that, as he says. Nevertheless, the, the growth and the scope, the growing scope of the Russian internet has been something remarkable in the last three or four years, and I would bet that the um, ability of the regime to crack down on it is not as great as its ability to grow and grow and grow, especially as more and more people get um, get onto the net. His largest point today was that the, the net gives governments, gives states, authoritarian states <coughs> and regimes the ability to track down, to find people who are protesting, and that is obviously the case. However, that's been the case of, one has to put against that, that's been the case with authoritarian regimes um, for, forever. As long as there have been authoritarian regimes, they have tracked people down. It is, of course, uh, much more sophisticated now. It can happen at a more sophisticated level, but then so can the resistance. So the two are both using the internet, uh, both abusing it, as we would see it, and using it. And actually, they, um, you can referred to the speech by Secretary Clinton a few, uh, few days ago, a few weeks ago, and she said this. Uh, she said that, and it was a, a speech which was in line with, if you like, uh, techno-optimism, if not techno-utopianism, and she said, we must also recognize that these techniques are not just an unmitigated blessing. These tools are also being exploited to undermine human, human progress and political rights 
as steel can be used to build hospitals, uh, or on the other hand, machine guns, nuclear power can either energize a city or destroy it. The same networks that help organize movements for freedom also enable Al-Qaeda to spew hatred. So there's a clear recognition on every side that, the, that, that these technologies uh, have both the ability for good and evil. In his book, which is, uh, is a tremendously interesting and, and energetic book, um, uh, The Net Delusion, um, he used a phrase which is, which, which although the, the book is, is very well written, vividly written, is still extra vivid. Uh, and it is a kind of expression of despair uh, for such a young man. It was, it was a shock to see it. Uh, he says that, uh, talking of his own fellow citizens or former fellow citizens, uh, I think it was fellow Russians or perhaps people in, in, in the former Soviet Union generally, he says that, that they've sunk into a bottomless, a bottomless reservoir of spin and hedonism. Uh, which I think means that, that, that Belarus has got PR advice, uh, and it has got PR advice from, uh, from Tim Bell, Bell Pottinger, who used to advise the Conservative Party, still does uh, advise the Conservative Party, and they go shopping in IKEA. And the, the, the two together, I think, are not a, a sign necessarily of great despair. Uh, you can both protest and have IKEA furniture. Uh, you can protest against uh, governments like our own, like the Western ones, who use public relations every hour of their lives. I, I do think that to, to, to suggest that, um, that, that populations in semi-authoritarian countries, in the post-Soviet countries, even in Belarus, which is more authoritarian than most, leaving aside the, the Central Asians, um, uh, that to, to suppose that the population there has now dropped out entirely and for the foreseeable future out of politics is, is probably wrong. He's the Belarusian, I'm not. But I would, I, I would bet that, um, that, that the hedonism, which by Western standards is fairly modest, and even the public relations the spin uh, has its limits and that the one of the factors of the increasing liberalization in, uh, the, in, in Ukraine, in Russia, and in Belarus, which, which carries on at the same time as the, as the regimes crack down or attempt to crack down. One of these is, uh, uh, is due to the internet, <coughs> due to the ability of the internet to create networks, to create discussion, to carry dissent, to carry dissent and the, the tropes of dissent to people who have not before um, thought about it. Uh, and the, the more that these networks increase, and in many countries, as in Iran and no doubt in Tunisia, they're fairly small at the moment, but as they increase, then that discussion, that debate, that carriage of the, the themes of a dissent and the ability simply to think of many people may not have done, to think of opposition as a possible mental state before one gets to going out on the street, is the, the, uh, is the most precious gift which um, <coughs> the social media, the internet, blogs, websites, and so on can give. As I say, none of this is um, foreign to what Yevgeny argues, but I think it's important when one hears him um, to also have in mind that that this side of the internet equation 
is important, remains important, and as one I think can see both in Russia and even more in China as becoming more important, and one would expect it to continue to do so. Thank you very much, John. Um, I want to give Evgeny a chance to respond briefly to that before throwing it open. Could I just add to John's last point yes. this question from your book? You have a powerful critique of technological determinism, yes. but you also dismiss the notion that technology is neutral. Mm -hmm. And you use the term from, from the history of technology that technologies have affordances. I think that's the term you use. Yes. Affordances, that is to say, they have, they enable you to, to do certain things more easily yes. and other things less easily. Mm -hmm. Do you think, bottom line, that the affordances of the technology of the internet mm -hmm. are more empowering, more liberating, or less mm -hmm. so? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so uh, thanks, John, uh, for, for your response. Um, I'll, I'll just run very quickly through a few notes I've made uh, with regards to your points. Uh, with regards to the WikiLeaks revolution in Tunisia, uh, again, uh, I, I, my, my only uh, big issue with regards to this is uh, how generalizable that is. Can we expect similar uh, protests happen elsewhere based on what has been revealed by WikiLeaks. I'm not talking about the power of information to mobilize people. I really want to zoom in on WikiLeaks, its moral, its ideology, and its assumptions, because those will be the policy lesson drawn from calling it the WikiLeaks revolution. You know, the notion of, uh, I think, you know, the best word is political romanticism that Julian Assange, you know, runs on, uh, will gain much more uh, weight uh, if we call it a WikiLeaks revolution. So in no way am I denying the political power of information. Uh, I'm just trying to stop people from drawing conclusions about the success and effectiveness of uh, WikiLeaks, the phenomenon. And uh, much here, I think, depends on uh, whether the country uh, that is in the cables um, is uh, a US satellite or not. In the case of Tunisia, uh, the kind of revelations that happened, um, you know, showed that the U.S. doesn't support Tunisia to the extent that they claim. And, you know, in the case of Belarus, which is not a U.S. satellite, which is not supported, I mean, the only revelations that are likely to happen <laughs> will embarrass America and the opposition. Right? So again, much here depends on politics. I just don't want uh, for us to get carried away with the notion that, you know, uh, uh, we should expect similar things happening in contexts that have nothing to do with Tunisia. Um, with regards to um, uh, your idea about the internet enabling some kind of a public sphere uh, in countries like Russia, I mean, this is something I agree on uh, with, uh, I think. Uh, you also have to remember that the government has been trying to engineer some kind of a public sphere of their own yes. in Russia successfully for the last decade with government funded and government created NGOs, with government created you know, public chambers of intellectuals. Uh, I mean, all of that is happening. Uh, I think it has to be understood within the broader political and social terms of how much value 
uh, government like Kremlin's uh, sees in having some kind of a quasi-controlled public sphere in Russia. And this is where the power of the internet will also kick in. If they think that having some kind of a public sphere is what they need to sustain their model of capitalism, you know, perhaps the internet then will just have an enabling role in that process. Um, with regards to, um, you know, uh, you know, the power of the internet in general. I think uh, my, my interest in the book and my interest sort of of my whole intellectual project is mostly to answer the question of how do you draft policy when we just don't know, uh, we don't have the conclusive uh, proof that the internet is helping either side, right? And we are not going to have that answer for the next several centuries. We still don't have, I think, some people are still not convinced <laughs> that there was a printing press revolution. <laughs> some are still arguing in the scholarly community, right? So the question is, how can someone in the State Department or you know, in Brussels or you know, in London uh, decide what to make of the potential of the internet when we don't have the definitive answer? How do you act and how do you draft policy in an environment of uncertainty? This is, by the way, how you draft you know, all policies. We don't, we don't have definitive answers. And here I think we really have to look at some of the underlying epistemological assumptions of how do we learn about the internet and its impact, who informs us, uh, whom do we get to hear. You know, if we only get to hear from secular and Western bloggers in Egypt, we're likely to get a slightly one-sided picture of the power of the internet in Egypt. Right, so uh, if we only hear from people from Silicon Valley who know everything about innovation and new media, we are also likely to miss the potential of new media to change things in places like Russia, because arguably you need to know much more about Russia than about the internet to know how the internet affects Russia. Right, so much of my critique evolves about building the right epistemological framework for actually building successful policy, and who should you listen to, to what extent, and how do you build those you know, structures in the policy process. Um, and to answer your question, Timothy, about affordances, uh, there is actually a great uh, debate within the design community where the notion of affordances comes from, uh, with you know, some series of design arguing that affordances are uh, you know, inherent in uh, you know, all technologies, that you know, they do not depend on the environment. Right, that uh, you know, if you look at a pan, its affordances, you know, is, is to write, so you do not see it as you know do, doing something else. And other people argue that the affordance depends on who is looking. Right? The affordance depends mm -hmm. on the particular environment in which this thing is to be used. So I think with the with regards to the internet, I would not ascribe any affordance to it in general because I think I, I don't see anything helpful coming out of that discourse of us agreeing that the internet is a democratizing force. Well, in many environments, it will prove to be the opposite. But again, my, my interest here is driven by the question of policy and policy making, and what kind, of, um, what kind of benefits can you derive from having these essentialist assumptions about the internet uh, you know, having a certain effect universally, or having a certain affordance universally. And here, I, I just do not see what we gain policy-wise. I'd rather start with a very cynical, nihilist kind of position, where you know, I deny no affordances unless I examine the context. Right? So you may start with a set of assumptions about how certain affordances may arise in certain contexts. And this, I think, is as far as we can go.